Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. The legend of Dr. Faustus received perhaps its most famous adaptation in a classic of the English Renaissance stage by Christopher Marlowe, arguably the most badass of the English Renaissance playwrights. In addition to poking at deep religious and political wounds in plays like Faustus and the Massacre at Paris, Marlowe probably functioned as a spy for the crown and died when he was stabbed near or in the right eye at a cafe in London. Marlowe's play is often described as a story in which God wins, but along the way, the devil has all the best lines. The story is based on a popular German legend circulating at the time. The title character is a learned professor who has grown frustrated with the limits of his academic study and seeks to understand the great secrets of the universe. He discovers that his best route to the full truth is magic, more specifically, necromancy. These metaphysics of magicians and necromantic books are heavenly. Lines, circles, scenes, letters, and characters. Aye, these are those that Faustus most desires. Faustus invokes Mephistopheles, who, somewhat off-brand, begs the philosopher to give up his demonic invocations. Where are you, damned? In hell. How comes it, then, that thou art out of hell? Why, this is hell, nor am I out of it. Thinkest thou that I, that saw the face of God, and tasted the eternal joys of heaven, am not tormented with ten thousand hells, and being deprived of everlasting bliss? O Faustus, leave these frivolous demands which strike a terror to my fainting soul. But Faustus makes his deal, as the old German legend tells, and the occult secrets of the universe are revealed to him. He teleports around the world, meeting the seven deadly sins, entertaining emperors by conjuring Alexander the Great and his paramours, as well as a nude Helen of Troy. In a fairly bizarre scene to modern eyes, he also stops by the Pope's court and plays a series of juvenile pranks on him. Marlowe is famously flip with the Holy Church in his Protestant England, albeit during a time of religious conflict. He has Faustus request that Satan's emissary appear to him in the guise of a Franciscan friar. But, despite Faustus's good humor, Marlowe must, as the legend dictates, condemn him to hell. Having dealt with the devil, heaven turns its back on him, and the devil arrives to drag Faustus down into the pit. It strikes, it strikes! Now, body, turn to air, or Lucifer will bear thee quick to hell. O soul, be changed into small water drops, and fall into the ocean, ne'er be found. O mercy, heaven, look not so fierce on me. Adders and serpents, let me breathe a while. Ugly hell, gape not. Come not, Lucifer, I'll burn my books, O Mephistopheles. The imaginary Faustus was inspired by the stories of a series of real German alchemists, well-traveled throughout Europe, whose scholarly exploits and willingness to engage with occult themes from ancient pagan and medieval Arabic philosophy led to accusations that they were trafficking with the devil. These men form a chronological progression, with each man citing his predecessor to defend his occult pursuits, or studying directly with him when time and geography permitted. Today, on Occult Confessions, the real-life alchemists who inspired the legend of Dr. Faustus. How about that? You guys excited for Faustus? That was epic. Yeah. I wish it was that epic when I read that thing. What? You didn't like it? <laughs> well, it's, it's a lot to stomach sometimes. It's very short. <laughs> well, at least Marlowe's is. Just don't yeah. read Goeth's if, if you want to have a good time. Gerta? Is that who you say his name? 
Yeah, it's a German thing. <laughs> it's, oh, a, it's just a German thing. I'm well, sorry it, to our German For listeners. some reason, I we have trouble German. with German words over in, in the in well in, in the English speaking world. There's a lot of syllables or lack thereof on a lot of. It's yeah. just yeah. there's no in between. Language, yeah. Nietzsche. But, there's all these words yeah. we fight about. Oh, that is one we fight about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, anyway, we're going to tell the real story. I'm excited. You ready for this? Yeah. Cool. Me too. My name good, is Rob cause... C. Thompson. What? I was going to say good because you you got to do it, but go ahead. <laughs> My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors and a doctor of things occult. Not exactly like Dr. Faustus, but not entirely unlike Dr. Faustus either. I have not made a deal with the devil, as far as I know. Am I your demon? <laughs> so Olivia's my demonic familiar. Yeah. My Mephistopheles is our uh, <laughs> grandmaster of the us. order, Olivia Literal. That's me bringing. I'm not bringing the knowledge, though. You're you're bringing it. So you would also have to be super sad to not be in the presence of God as a fallen angel. Yeah, that I'm struggling with that one. I guess maybe I'm still in my in the low level stages of grief. You know. <laughs> You're working your way through. Yeah, as a fallen angel. <laughs> it's a slow process. You have millions of years to work it out. I gotta work my way back to God, yeah. And uh, Dan is back. Now, Dan, here's a fun fact. The last time Dan was on the podcast, it was before COVID. Yeah, oh I, I, I could see you. Now I can't <laughs> see you, Rob. Where are you? It was both before and not before because we recorded, Dan was the very last person um, on our, like the last day, like in our theater. Yeah. <laughs> we oh, were frantically right. recording episodes because we knew the quarantine was coming. That what was episode I. was that? Oh. Oh, I thought maybe you'd know. <laughs> it was Sorry. a conspiracy series. Dan, do you remember what the last one was you were on? Oh, it's it's in season nine. I know that. That's bad. We don't know. It was the beginning of the conspiracy was. series, maybe. So maybe Nesta Helen Webster, one of those? Yeah, that's not, that's in the ballpark. <laughs> Somewhere around her. We, the members of the, of the secret, secret order, order of alchemical actors, actors, do solemnly commit, commit ourselves to a, to a full and, and honest, honest telling, telling of the history of the, of the occult, occult as far as, far as, as we know it. know it. All right, uh, let's get down to those plugs. Plug, plug, plug. I feel like you got your mojo back on the plugs. Yeah, I kind of went for it a little bit with that one. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard plugging by myself. That sounded bad. We we're going to edit that out. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not you got to edit. That. Oh, God. Okay, whatever. All plug-based puns stay in the podcast. You're right. You <laughs> You're right. Everyone have a field inadvertent. day. All right, yeah. let's do this. Uh, so Emery J, Emery J, longtime friend of the podcast. They have joined the crew of patrons. Welcome, Woo! Emery. Anthony P, uh, Evelyn L, Ash D, and Zappas SG, who I assume is listening to Weasel's Rip My Flesh as we speak. Ah. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Look at you being cultured. Zappa (laughs) reference. Okay. I I figured I could have gone with Hot Rats, but that feels cliche. Yeah, that's just an (laughs) alley-oop. I just want to... Love you, do you have any idea what we're talking about? Nope. <laughs> See? Well, boy, do I have an album for you. <laughs> it's a big tent, big tent podcast, both for people who can name a Zappa album and people who cannot. 
Um, <laughs> I also okay. want to send my love to uh, Mila, who I believe we called Mila in the last episode. So, oops, love for Mila. It's sort of what we do. We mispronounce names here and then go back and pronounce them cor- correctly. <laughs> yeah. It's an evolving right. podcast. We edit as we go. Now, uh, Dan is Dan doesn't know that he's here in part for this reason, uh, but we have a very special announcement to make uh, on today's episode because we have cleared the bar for being uh, what I consider to be fully funded, which means that the basic expenses of the podcast are now being met on a month to month basis. Of course, we're going to have to go back and and pay for some of our debts. uh, So it's going to take a little while before we completely catch up. Uh, But good job, listeners. You did it. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Drop the balloons. Now, I actually um, foresaw this coming. Can I say it that way? Sure. You yeah, can do whatever you want uh, with that PhD. I really can't. <laughs> I wish that was true. Our well, reviewers say otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, about three months ago, uh, we began work on our second project, and that project is called the Dark Pool. Ooh. So, um, beginning in September. We will start launching a series of episodes um, under as, as the Dark Pool. Um, so this is not going to detract from occult confessions. I am nothing if not a sadist. I will continue to roll out these episodes. <laughs> Hell yeah! Sadist <laughs> first, PhD basis. second. We love sadism here. <laughs> um, so we're not slowing down with this this podcast at all. Um, in fact, the Dark Pool is going to be a very different project. Um, it's not something we're going to do every week or every other week. We are going to roll out um, a series of episodes through Halloween, and that's it. So that's going to be we're going to do sort of like like a television season you do you drop your season and then we'll be back again next year to to do another season if if it goes over well <laughs> so god yeah. we're doing another one <laughs> <laughs> um so what's maybe we were hoping that our occult confessions listeners will be interested in this uh, it's not like what we're doing here it it is in a way it's all of all of your friends from occult confessions have joined together to create this second project um but Unlike this podcast where we talk about the occult, in Dark Pool, we are actually going to be doing our own parapsychological experiment and uh, delving into our own brand of occultism. So uh, it's a mix of storytelling, there's a bit of fiction, and uh, a lot of real-life experience um, as I basically take four innocent young college students and uh, put them through the paces and torture them and uh, make make paranormal things happen to them. Morality questionable, enjoyment guaranteeable. Wow. (laughs) TM. (laughs) No uh, we so, have you helping with social media. <laughs> uh, stay tuned. At the end of the episode, we are going to uh, post the trailer for uh, Dark Pool. Uh, so there you go. And uh, while we're in the plugs, Olivia, I promised last time I would let you do this. Go ahead. We got... Merch? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm like, what did you There's promise confidence. me? You promised me anything. Merch. Um yeah, we have merch, guys. Merch, merch, merch. Um, 20 bucks for a t-shirt. You really can't beat that. 
they're actually like legit nice t-shirts like we like Jacob and I were joking about it I think the last episode but also we're totally serious that these shirts are very comfy so there's your yeah. plugs let's close like them that up. was a decent plug 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 Albertus Magnus number one the first of the German scholars that we will be visiting on our tour through the Faustuses of history was a Dominican friar dating back all the way to the 13th century. Albertus Teutonicus was based in Cologne and spent much of his career appropriating Greek philosophical thought into a Christian context. Albertus, along with his contemporaries Robert Kilwardby and Roger Bacon, established the touchstones for the study of natural philosophy for generations afterwards and was given the title Magnus in the 14th century as well as Dr. Universalis. He sets the stage for the lineage of famous German alchemists we're discussing today. As a medieval scholar living in the 13th century, he became a major inspiration for Renaissance thinkers, particularly the German philosophers and occultists who would follow him, most importantly Johannes Trithemius, but also Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, and Paracelsus. Albertus was born sometime between 1193 and 1207, and he died in 1280. As a young man, he traveled throughout Europe with his uncle, visiting mining districts to learn about metals. Sounding very alchemical so far, yeah? The alchemists do enjoy some metals. <laughs> Everyone enjoys some so metals. So I have heard. An occasional stone, I think I have heard as well. He's a the, gem or two, maybe. Not, not a not any of stone. the alchemists. He experimented with metal early in his career. He, uh, no, anyone? Okay. No, I, I, I was just going to let it sit, you know, let it marinate. <laughs> <laughs> you sounded like you had more to add. <laughs> Early metal. Anyway. He studied art and medicine, but does not seem to have taken a degree. In the 1220s, he joined the Dominicans, an order founded by the Spanish monk Dominic in 1216. So it was like a new cool thing to become a Dominican when he joined them. So he studied it, but he didn't get a degree you said he did a lot he did a lot of research but he didn't take a degree he got a university. minor he was a it. dabbler he was a dabbler yeah okay dominicans were sent to their home countries where they could spread their teachings using their knowledge of the native language and customs and so after he studied the spanish dominican tradition he went back to germany where uh, he was assigned first to teutonia and then also cologne he was a skilled teacher and lectured in Dominican houses in Hildesheim, Freiburg im Breisgau, and Regensburg. I've been watching that, uh, that Netflix show Dark. Uh, so oh, I heard that's good. It's helping me with my German pronunciation. It's actually so not because they dubbed it. You're but sounding wonderful. I've been seeing a lot of German words. I'm sure I'm doing a horrible job. Uh, German listeners, feel free to tell me how terrible I am at this. In the 1240s, he earned a Master of Theology, there's your degree, Olivia, at the University oh. of Paris, where he stayed on as a professor until 1248. In Paris, he developed a passion for studying Aristotle's science and metaphysics. Together with his student Thomas Aquinas, who some of you may have oh. heard of, Albertus would popularize the study of Aristotle as a positive contribution to Christian thought, rather than a pagan departure from orthodoxy as Aristotle had been viewed in the past. So this is part of Thomas Aquinas' philosophy as well, is bringing Aristotle over, saying he's not just a dirty pagan, 
he can actually inform the way we think of ourselves as Christians. I was supposed to read a book about him for my Reformations class. Supposed to? Yeah, I'm not going to read a whole book on one. Well, I would read a whole book on one person, but not him. (laughs) He traveled extensively in the 1250s between Germany, Belgium, Italy, and France, moving on foot because of Dominican prohibitions against riding on carts or horses, except in extreme emergencies. Let me just do that one more time. Wait. So so Germany weren't allowed? Yes, it it was a Dominican. Monks all have, and also nuns, there's like these weird rules for each order because they think it brings them closer to God. Was it the spreading legs thing? They have to spread legs to get on a horse? (laughs) To sit in a cart? (laughs) Or, well... I don't know how you sit in your cart, Rob, but the night of the cart uh, in are you guys we do we did the night of the cart a while back on the podcast. I can't remember what the topic was, but it's Lancelot for some reason. And Lancelot rides in a cart, and it's shameful to ride in a cart. So in the medieval period, (laughs) it's just one of those things, one of those customs. Um, But in their case, I think in part it was it was about. I mean, listen to the list of countries: Germany, Belgium, Italy. France. Think about where they are on the map. This man walked to each of these places. Dang. So I, I think there's, I do a lot of walking. I think there might be, a, like, a, there's a spiritual contemplation that comes with walking a lot, you know, the solitude and the concentration that it requires. And you can't really do much else. I mean, people got their headphones in. I try not to, though, because you can sort of be with yourself a bit. Uh, and I think that that might be part of the logic of, for the Dominicans. I can't say for sure, but that's that's what I would guess. So We're not a Catholic podcast. For them, right? It wasn't for like the other one with the Franciscan or whatever the hell. Yeah, this was a Dominican rule. Everybody had their own rules. Well, I don't know about you, Rob, but I've had many a spiritual moment in my 2014 Toyota Corolla, highest in its economy class. Is this an ad? <laughs> As I recall, Albertus did not have a Toyota Corolla. Well, he should have. It probably could have helped. (laughs) During the course of his career, he served as a bishop, as preacher of the crusade in Germany and Bohemia. So, yeah, not so cool. That's a cool title. I guess it's a cool title, but not not a cool cause. Yeah, that's like saying the the Fuhrer is a cool title. The Fuhrer? (laughs) Did I say that wrong, too? Dang, I just need to stop. You're having a tough time with German today. I I just need to stop. He was also a member of the Council of uh, Lyon. He was regularly involved in resolving disputes on a local, national, and international level and died at his home uh, in his monastery in Cologne in 1280, uh, where he was buried. So lived most of his life on in, in a monastery. That's a lot of disputes. Yeah, he's a busy guy. So throughout his life, Albertus was regarded as a learned source, not only on Aristotelian natural science, but also on the subjects of astrology, alchemy, and divination. These were subjects the ancient philosophers often touched upon, and arguably, their ideas informed tracts like the Emerald Tablet, translated into Arabic first and then Latin before being picked up by the German alchemists. The translation of the Emerald Tablet that Albertus would have read was ascribed to Plato of Tivoli and recorded in the Book of Alchemy ascribed to Hermes Trismegistus. So you can see the pieces of this season are linking all together here. In addition to a series of pithy Hermes sayings, the book contained recipes for making brass, red and white lead, and green copper pigments, which is pretty much my menu for tonight. You are eating lead. 
That is not Don't do nutritional. that. Do not advocate the consumption of lead. Question, though. Why would you want different colored leads? Is that just for taste? I um, Probably for aesthetics. Ah. If I had to guess. I don't know much about this stuff. This is out of my... I don't do too much in material culture, but... If I had to guess, yeah, it would be... What do you think, Olivia? I... The only... <laughs> Every time we think about or we talk about alchemy, I just think about in chemistry class how we made the flames different colors, and that's the closest I can get mentally. So, well, lead we use it in pencils, or we used to use it in pencils. So I feel like you could use it to color something. I just wonder. I can't remember like what that whole thing was, but I remember some science people out there might know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Or just anyone that took high school chemistry. <laughs> hopefully, a reasonable number of people. Hopefully, there's a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, my chemistry teacher was like a little bit off a rocker, but like, I don't know. That's what really. it takes to teach chemistry, I think. She like coined like frozen chicken sperm. Nice. She like created that. The education like, that we all deserve. Well, apparently, anyway, keep going. <laughs> Albertus talks about Hermes directly in his texts, calling him by the name Hermes in Alchemis. Hermes in Alchemicus. There it is. What? That's the name he uses. He doesn't call him Hermes Trismegistus. He calls him Hermes in Alchemicus. Why? Uh, I think Trismegistus is like a like Magnus, Albertus oh, Magnus. Oh, that kind of sounds okay. There's like a it's like different appellations that you can put on the name. Okay, I get you. In the Book of Minerals, Albertus talks about the use of sigils on rocks as a form of natural magic. This, he says, is not a demonic art, but a good doctrine. Now we must speak of the images and sigils and stones. For although the subject belongs to that part of necromancy which is dependent on astrology, and is called the necromancy of images and sigils, yet, because it is good doctrine, and because the members of our order have desired to learn this from us, we shall say something here. Though rejecting all incomplete and false statements about whatever has been written of these things by many people, few really understand the writings of the wise men of antiquity about the sigils of stones, nor is it possible to understand them without at the same time understanding the sciences of astrology and magic and necromancy. Citing Hermes of Egypt along with Magor of Greece, Germa of Babylon, and Ptolemy, Albertus discusses why the carving of gems and use of sigils was recommended by wise men. Human beings can engage in the creation of sigils and carved gems if they follow the laws of nature which are governed by the heavens. Human beings have a naturally God-oriented nature and a will. We can exercise our will or go against our nature, but our nature is essentially good. So following our nature in the creation or use of magical gems and stones keeps us on the side of all things good and Christian. He articulates the doctrine of correspondences in terms of hierarchy. Heaven is at the top, then nature, then human art. The heavens exert their influence on earthly nature, which we can in turn channel through our human art. Like this podcast. If I discover a figure carved on a stone by water or vapors, that image has been placed there by nature to enhance the stone or gem's power. If I channel the power of nature or become an open medium to nature's direction, then I can achieve the same result of instilling or enhancing the power of a mineral. Do you see? So I can get my hands on a rock and I can channel my own natural power right into it. 
This heavenly correspondence also informs the power of the rock itself, depending on its orientations to the heavens. The placement of the planets and stars in turn informs when best to create a carving or image on its surface. Should you do it on a Tuesday or a Thursday? So I don't know if this question is off base, but isn't there a whole thing? This is like reminding me of the three wise men. And that's like a whole, like that's supposed to be like an alchemy thing in some circles, right? Like Some they think believe the three that they were alchemists. Men, yeah. Yeah. Which is why like the, the different with the, the like myrrh. the frankincense and the myrrh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All sorry. children love myrrh for their birthday. Well, you were talking about like the stars and the. Yeah. This guy is. Like, He's very okay. So here's the weird thing about Albertus Magnus, and I I read some of him in, like not original, but I read translation of his primary texts. Uh, he's like very hip. So a lot of stuff that people are into today, Albertus Magnus was writing about in the 13th century. Let me do you one better here. Listen to this: a particular image on a particular stone can be used to cure disease and otherwise improve a person's condition. Think about y'all wearing your gems in your or putting them in just, your pocket. Yeah. These images are derived from the constellations of the zodiac grouped into, listen to this, four sets of three, which are each assigned to an element. Sagittarius, Aries, and Leo are fire signs and can cure fever and paralysis and render the wearer skillful and clever, said the Sagittarian. Taurus, Virgo, and Capricorn are earth signs and cure fainting fits and incline the wearer toward agriculture and gardening. That's you, Dan. Is that Dan? Oh, Virgo, He's right? Virgo. Mm-hmm. You are agricultural, my friend. And you cure fainting fits. Gemini, Libra, and Aquarius are air signs and can dispose the wearer of a carved stone to friendship and righteousness. And now here's my child and uh, my Olivia. Cancer, Scorpio, and Pisces are water signs uh, who can temper a hot, dry fever, but also inspire lies and inconstancy in the wearer. Yeah, that that feels right. <laughs> I feel that. I think you guys get the like Magnus is the most suspicious of y'all in the water sign category. <laughs> because we always get like the shit end of the stick. Like I'm telling you, like especially Scorpio, like I don't know. Yeah, my people up in the fire signs. I think he has nothing negative to say about us, but when he by the time he gets down to Cancer and Scorpio, he's, <laughs> he's like, you better watch out for these guys. He's like, you guys are mean and emotional. For our many astrology enthusiasts listening today, you'll notice that these elemental designations, Olivia, right, haven't changed in 800 years. Yeah. In a chapter on the use of amulets, Albertus endorses a variety of occult uses for different stones and gems advocated by both Aristotle and Dioscorides. 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 Aristotle also says that there are many different kinds of magnets. For some attract gold and others, different from these, attract silver, and some tin, some iron, and some lead, and some attract human flesh. And it is said that a man attracted by such a magnet laughs, and remains where he is until he dies, if the stone is very large. And some attract bones, and some hairs, and some water, and some fish. Amethyst and sardonyx, placed or suspended over the navel of a man who is drunk or is drinking wine, oppose the fumes of the wine and cure drunkenness, freeing him from its attack. And Dioscordes says that the stone Epidistrite offers security from wild beasts, and if it is placed in an alembic, that is a vessel of boiling water, the pot stops boiling. Also, he says that the stone produced from the foam of the sea 
which is called Spumaris, bound on the hip of a pregnant woman, hastens birth, and bound on the neck of a child that has a violent cough. It soothes the cough. Although Albertus was considered by some of his contemporaries to be a magus, in the centuries that followed some of his admirers, most notably his fellow Dominicans, became worried over Albertus's occult reputation and sought to put distance between the friar and his supernatural studies. In the 1480s, the Dominicans sought the canonization of Albertus as a saint in an effort to undercut rumors about his dealings in necromancy. But these efforts would meet with only limited success until, listen to this, 1931. That's how long it took to canonize this guy. That's like hundreds of years. You mess with those uh, water signs and boy, you're never coming back. Yo, is that's the truth though. Takes you um, 450 <laughs> years to recover. Because they hold a grudge like no one's business. Pope Pius XI is responsible for his canonization uh, shortly before World War II, uh, and uh, he also declared him a doctor of the church. Interestingly, the man who probably gave these friars the task of vindicating Albertus's reputation was none other than Jacob Sprenger. Does that name sound familiar at all to either of you? No. Nope, he is the co-author of the Malleus Maleficarum, hmm. the manual for the discovery and trial of witches. So, Yeah, I wouldn't know the co-author, that's for sure. <laughs> I don't even know the author off the top of my head. Sprenger's uh, manual for witch trials shows the growing conviction among 15th... Arguably, it was written by one person. Anyway, uh, we don't know. We're oh, not, we're just him? Sure. Huh? So just him? Possibly. So his manual oh. for witch trials shows the growing conviction among 15th and 16th century people that any occult practice was necessarily demonic. In this view, any manipulation of the natural order, either through the alchemical transformation of substances or psychological control, as in a love potion, involved some degree of traffic with the devil. The 15th century friars sought to label Albertus's study of alchemy and astrology as an effort to discredit occultism and that he was forced to undertake his study, not out of curiosity, but as an authority on medieval natural philosophy, who was asked to weigh in on these increasingly popular practices. So basically they're saying he's uh, like an anti-occultist who just like dabbled in occultism so that he could write arguments against it. He didn't want to knock it till he tried it. He's a poser. That's what they're saying, yeah. Got it. The friars argued that Albertus only engaged with alchemical and astrological texts in order to sift out the good from the bad, the natural from the supernatural in their arguments about him, that is. Here's an interesting thing. Another black mark on Albertus's reputation, so another of the reasons why it took 450 years to get him canonized, was an episode of cross-dressing. In oh. his life, yeah, right. This is so cool. That's fun. Love in his, this. In his life of Albertus, the friar Rudolf de Nijmegen, Nijmegen also addressed the rumor that Albertus disguised himself as a woman. And here's why he did this: in order to serve as an apprentice to a midwife, so that he could learn the secrets of embryology, gynecology, and obstetrics. That's so I insanely love that. cool. Like kind of kind of sus for like dressing up like a, a woman to learn about gynecology. Like there's some some morality that could be questioned there. But in general, <laughs> thumbs up. 
when should you two ever get into the wide world of pregnancy, there's uh, people who are pregnant or no people who are pregnant. Uh, the sort of feminist argument around pregnancy is that it's often ignored and the woman's health is uh, treated as secondary or tertiary. So I think it's sort of uh, advanced, right, of Albertus in the 13th century to say, I, uh, I am fascinated by this subject and I want to know more about this process from the perspective of a midwife, right? Yeah, he put toxic masculinity at the door for a second. But his association with midwives was not only troublesome for the prohibitions against wearing opposite gender clothing. Of course, that's going to be a problem in medieval Europe. But also because midwives were popularly associated with sexual magic and sin in the form of love potions. There they are again. But also contraceptives. They're passing out condoms like it's the health center on campus. And abortifacients, which is a nice fancy word for things that you can use to have an abortion. So, of course, Christian medieval Europe has mixed feelings about all of these things. They don't. They hate them. Hate all three of these. Yeah. Albertus did demonstrate expertise in conception, childbirth, and fetal development, but, said Rudolf, that didn't mean that he had worked as a midwife any more than that a botanist had to work as a gardener in order to write about the science of plants. I I don't like... (laughs) Wait, what do you... I don't get that. I don't think it's a very functional argument that this guy was making. So he's saying, this friar Rudolf, he's saying uh, a gardener is not a botanist, right? So it wouldn't have been necessary for Albertus to be a midwife to be able to write about gynecology and obstetrics because he's saying a botanist doesn't have to be a gardener. But that is a bit nonsensical because a botanist does, I think, need to get his hands on a plant. Plus, a gardener doesn't need to have botanist knowledge to technically be a gardener, really, right? Well, that's the midwife, right? So the midwife is the gardener in this simile and the... The botanist is Albertus. So the argument is that a botanist, in writing his treatises about plants, need never be a gardener. Do you see what I mean? I guess. But I think you kind of have to be. I think if you're a botanist, you also have to be a little bit of a gardener. Like, you don't need to have all the best techniques for, I don't know, trimming shrubs. But you kind of do need to know about plants. So if you got to know that vagina... And, uh, you know, the uterus and all the pieces in between if you're going to write about them. So I, I kind of put credit. I, I, I believe this might have happened. It's, it's almost too weird not to have happened that he dressed as a midwife. But we can only guess. It was 700 years ago. <laughs> so the Renaissance Dominicans sought to invoke the learned medieval friar as an early advocate of Sprenger's persecution of witches and sorcerers because they're saying he's, you know, Uh, an anti-occultist. The 15th century friars and Sprenger overseeing them also wanted to make sure that the famous scholar Albertus couldn't be used to defend occult practices. This was a legitimate concern since he was literally used to do that exact thing, most significantly by the future alchemist Johannes Trithemius. When accused of practicing black magic, Johannes Trithemius called on Albertus Magnus's example to defend his right to explore the occult arts with a Christian mindset. Let's talk about Johannes Trithemius. Johann. 
He was primarily interested in reconciling magical practices to Christian theology. Trithemus was partially responsible for carrying magical practice forward through the Renaissance and into the Age of Reason, informing the work of scientists who were also alchemists, like Isaac Newton. He was born at Trittenheim on the banks of the Mosul, from which he took his Latinized name. There is a legend of Trithemius bringing Emperor Maximilian I's wife, Mary of Burgundy, back from the dead. His father died when Johannes was still a child, and his mother remarried. Only one half-brother Jacob survived from his mother's second marriage. Johannes planned to become a scholar, but his stepfather disagreed with this plan, and so he ran away from home to pursue his education. Badass. He moved to the Netherlands, and then to Heidelberg, where he began his studies. On his way back from Heidelberg to the Mosul Valley, he was caught in a snowstorm and forced to seek shelter at the monastery of St. Martin at Sponheim. Reading this is a sign from God. Trithemius became a novice there and at the age of 21 became the monastery's abbot. Pretty young to be rising to the top. Trithemius collected a large library of texts, seeking, like Albertus before him, to unify learning and piety, pagan philosophy, and Christian theology, and his reputation spread throughout Europe. Literary scholars and princes sought out his counsel on matters of scholarship, but also magic. His reputation as an occult scholar began with a message that fell into the wrong hands. In 1499, Trithemius wrote to Arnold Bostius, a Carmelite monk in Ghent, informing him of a new project he was researching on a practice that he called steganography, or the art of writing and conveying secret messages over long distances through the mediation of angels. Up until 1499, Trithemius had shown no interest in occult theory or practice and had confined his work to a fairly standard liberal arts curriculum. But when his letter arrived at the Ghent Monastery, his correspondent Bostius had died, and the prior who ended up reading it interpreted Trithemius's new interest as traffic with the devil. The devil is back. Scandalized, the prior shared the letter with the public, because that's the first thing you do when you're scandalized by a private letter. Just print it. I mean, why not? You guys there? Hamilton <laughs> yeah, did. Yeah, no, no. Sorry, I'm listening. I was just. Yeah, I, I was kind of caught up in your in your. Yeah. I was All right. Just okay. Listening. I got you. I'll carry this on. Like, this is just like a regular like HBO show. <laughs> this is basically one of my historical Private letters dramas. Being yeah. publicly, you know, it converses with the devil. It's, it's you know. Anyway. Yeah. Did you say traffic with the devil? Traffic with the devil. I would watch that. That's like, what's that coffee? Comedians with coffee. <laughs> Seinfeld's shooting in cars with comedians. But I would do that, except traffic with sitting the devil. In, sitting in traffic with <laughs> Satan. That would be amazing. I feel like Satan would be quite irritable in traffic. Probably. It's also like maybe a little bit of cash cab mixed in. Like we pick up people and ask them like questions about hell. See if they get it right. So after his if letter not, gets discovered. Sorry. <laughs> Trithemius decides, from this point forward, he's going to keep his steganographical research to himself, sharing only with select disciples during his lifetime. But this proved problematic when Trithemius shared his steganographia with the French mathematician Charles de Beauvillus, who concluded that its so-called communication through angels was actually communication through demons dressed up with insincere prayers. And he dismissed Trithemius as a sorcerer and a quack. Uh, not in quack. no particular order. Yeah, this this angel message service is really not going over well with the wide world. Ha-ha, Actually, there it were is. demons all along, cross-dressing as angels. So there's these famous scholars who are either arguing with him or monks who are publishing and causing the scandal. However, 
the truth of the matter is Trithemius is like picked up this, and I don't mean this flip in a flip way, but a cult reputation. Uh, you know, he's, he's got like a cult following and people are starting to like flock to him. By 1505, the monks at Sponheim were losing patience with all of his visitors because they wanted to explore his library, which had grown quite extensive uh, and was full of occult tracts. Relations between Trithemius and his monks had grown strained over this other thing he did to them because he was in charge, remember? It was a rigorous scholarly program uh, making them copy out texts by hand despite the fact that the printing press had been in Germany for over 60 years. Oh, oh my man. God. So that'd be a little bit That's like me word. handing out typewriters to you guys and saying, here, <laughs> this yeah. is what I want you to do all your work on. All of my flipped episodes are now hand typed. Not only that, but I give you a megaphone and make you stand on your roof. That's how people will hear them. <laughs> I feel like if anyone, Olivia could accomplish that. <laughs> Thanks for your faith, but... I got you. So uh, his monastery is pissed at him. So he takes an invitation to visit an assembly of German princes in Cologne and use that opportunity to resign from Sponheim, where they just had enough of him, and take a new post at the Monastery of St. Jacob in Würzburg. There, he lost his library, but he gained a measure of intellectual freedom. He focused his research in two areas. Number one, demonology. Number two, occult operations. Music to our ears. We love these okay. subjects. Yeah, we have an episode titled one of those. <laughs> yes. The second one, on the way. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> occult operations seasons. is the whole podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on demonology, he wrote in response to questions put to him by the Emperor Maximilian and started to work on an encyclopedia of demons, which he never completed. An encyclopedia that, unfortunately, you also can't look for because it is an extant. What in year is this again? What, where are we now? We're in the 15th, uh, 15th, 16th century now. 1505. Okay, cool. A little bit after 1505. Cool. So 16th century. Uh, extant. In opposition to the growing hostility toward the supernatural in Germany, he sought to align his theology with that of the church fathers, who existed in a world in which demons could occasionally pop by for a visit. Lest we forget, I can't say this enough, when Christianity was founded... Angels and demons were everywhere. It's only as we move through the history of Christianity into the present day that we uh, start pushing them out of the world and labeling them heretical. It was like the Hobbit. You could just be your own Bilbo having breakfast and suddenly Gandalf the demon knocks on your door with eight, <laughs> yes. eight other demons. It's like, hey. It's not how I recall the plot of that, but sure, yeah. <laughs> Gandalf the demon. <laughs> that Christian metaphor. Trithemius argued uh, that demons did not interfere in human affairs unless invited. Wickedness made people vulnerable to demonic attack. He went out on an early form of paranormal investigation to visit places haunted by demons. Among them, I love this story, was the town of Mainz, where a demon was dislodging stones from the tops of buildings and hurling them at pedestrians. <laughs> he was just stoning people in the streets himself. Yeah, but like yeah, hardcore. Yeah, like also from like a sniper position. Like this yes. he was he meant business. Yeah, he was getting up on roofs. Um and he was sneaking into women's beds with them. Oh shit. Mischievous demons were a nuisance, but they were less likely to imperil your soul than those demons that were brought into contact with humans who suffered from a debased will. So if you had a debased will, the demons who would attack you are not doing cute, fun things like hurling boulders at you from the tops of houses. Wait, they're, they're boulders now? I imagined him like pushing the gargoyle off the side of the church. That's a big Ouch. stone. 
And and to make matters worse, he could like throw a rock at you and then be like, "Yeah, I also banged your wife last night." Eat that, <laughs> George. <laughs> Uh, in the class of demons who attack people who have a debased will were demons who possessed their victims and could be exorcised and demons with whom sorcerers and witches willingly trafficked. So there's all your demons that he was writing about. On the practice of magic, he wrote about cryptography and the influence of planetary angels on human beings, understood through the study of astrology and the Kabbalah. Both of these were extensions of his initial research into steganography. In the seven secondary causes of the heavenly intelligences governing governing the orbs under God, which was what we were going to call the podcast, but we decided to go with a shorter title. Oh my God. Yeah, that would have saved the logo a lot of space. <laughs> Trithemius. Trithemius gives a brief history of time, outlining how the particular planetary angel ascendant at a given moment in history informed the events that took place at that point in time. So you have different angels moving into the dominant position, and those angels' personalities influence what's happening on Earth. Dedication to the Emperor, Maximilian. Renounced Caesar, it is the opinion of very many of the ancients that this inferior world by ordination of the first intellect, which is God, is directed and ordered by secondarian intelligences, to which opinion conciliate or mediocrum sense, saying that from the original or first beginning of heaven and earth, there were seven spirits appointed as presidents to the seven planets, of which number every one of those ruleth the world 354 years and four months in order. To this position, many and they most learned men have afforded their consent, which opinion of theirs myself not affirming but delivering do make manifest to your most sacred majesty. In his letter to the deceased Bastius, he described a series of books in process on occult practice. The first concerned cryptography, or the encoding of messages. The second, the transmission of messages across great distances through non-physical means. The third, how to teach an uneducated man how to read and write in Latin in two hours. And the fourth, how to uh, the fourth, how a thought can be transferred to another person without words or gestures while in the company of others, also known as steganography there you go there's your occult practices they just sound like modern youtube titles <laughs> yeah the two, two hours, hours thing like, yeah how, how to learn latin in two hours wow actually worked crazy <laughs> like in fake. parentheses like here. all caps <laughs> this weird trick helped me learn latin in two hours doctors hate him for teaching <laughs> <people> latin <laughs> The process of steganography, let's get down to that now, began with the message sender writing a prayer stamped with the seal of one of the 12 heavenly emperors and sending it to the message recipient. These 12 emperors are rulers of the 12 regions that the heavens have been divided into. Let him prepare an invocation of the divine name in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the paper on which he will write. Next, let him write on it any simple and open narration he wants, such that anyone who reads it can understand it, whether in Latin, his native tongue, or any other language. And when he has sat down to write, facing towards the east, let him summon the spirits. And when you have finished writing the intended letter, send it with a messenger to a friend who is proven in this art. The recipient then turns toward the domain of the emperor, physically in space, and uses special conjurations to call up one of his supernatural servants to bring him the intended message. The letter itself contains no information. It is the spirits who carry the information that must be conveyed between these two adepts. 
The spirits will then, of their own accord, forcibly present themselves and shout such that in general others present will also be able to perceive the sender's secret. But make sure to affix the proper sign upon every message that you send which is written with this art, so that he to whom you write will know which spirits you have used. For if he employs one set of spirits to understand your message, but you have used a different set to send it, they will never in all eternity obey him. And instead of performing their contracted operation, they will assault him and in no way reveal your secret. For every spirit we use in this art heeds only the orders and offices entrusted to him, and involves himself not at all in the affairs of any other. Among the various students of the occult that visited Johannes Trithemius at his monastery, two names rise to the fore, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa and Paracelsus. In the case of Paracelsus, the association is largely a matter of legend. There are no first-hand accounts or documents directly connecting the two alchemists. But Agrippa's relationship with Trithemius is well established. Agrippa dedicated his book of occult philosophy to Trithemius and mentioned Trithemius in his correspondence. In a chapter appended to his three books of occult philosophy in 1533, Agrippa specifically included steganography in his discussion of messages transmitted through the air from one person to another, claiming to have not only witnessed, but participated in this feat. And so let us turn now to Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. He began his writing career as an anti-occultist. Sounds familiar, right? This is the reverse of Albertus. He ended his career being called an anti-occultist. In 1531, he published on the uncertainty and vanity of the arts and sciences, arguing that human scholarship can never aspire to true certainty and knowledge. He implicated his old master in the text, Trithemius, sarcastically referring to steganography, which he would implicitly condone two years later in his books of occult philosophy. So he's back and forth on this. He's flip-floppity. Flip-floppity. Agrippa's skepticism is a product of his distrust of human technique and learning to reveal the higher truths of God, and the tendency of humans to misuse their knowledge for base ends like pride and greed. The short gap in time, only two years between Agrippa's skeptical text and his three books of occult philosophy, seems to suggest that he intended for magic to be the answer to this skepticism, but the chronology is really accidental. In fact, Both his occultism and his skepticism of human learning are part of the same philosophical system of thought that praised his old master Trithemius, while at the same time smacking him upside the head. Ouch, a double-edged sword. Like every conversation with Olivia. Ooh. Oh, God. (laughs) Unprovoked. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) You're my Agrippa. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Although many German alchemists, including Magnus and Trithemius, informed the legend of Faust, Agrippa was probably the model for Goethe's version of the character. So Goethe wrote this enormous play about Faust, uh, and, and most believe that he based it specifically on Agrippa. The Enlightenment writer, poet, and philosopher lived two centuries after the occultist's death and framed his story of Faust as an epic romantic tale between the title alchemist and a woman, Gretchen, who the great doctor falls in love with. Sort of an, uh, this was uh, Goethe's um, innovation on the story. Hmm. After his deal with Mephistopheles, the devil conspires to throw Gretchen into the magician's arms. He tricks Gretchen into murdering her mother. Uh, Faust impregnates her. And then Faust murders her brother. 
What the hell? But wait, there's more. Gretchen goes on to drown their child and is convicted of murder, refusing to leave the prison when Faust comes to rescue her. Wait, so Faust just like walked in and was like, yo, we can leave. And she was like, I think I'm cool sitting on this bale of hay. Yeah, yeah, he was like, I have magic, let's go. And she said, no, I'm really bad. I belong, and I have to stay here. I'm I'm a bad person. You made me a bad she's person. sticking to her morals. Respect to her. She's sticking to her, except when she's murdering her child. Well, yeah, I was okay, about to okay. say. <laughs> but then after that, you know, just pause for a little bit, and then after that. It was a slight, slight slip up. It. Yeah, she's going back to the, back to the, the path of morality. So a lot of this is not really based on Agrippa, uh, but there is this one interesting tidbit that connects the two. Goethe's Faust is tempted into selling his soul to the devil after a black poodle follows him home and transforms into Mephistopheles. (laughs) Although none of Agrippa's three wives were ever imprisoned for murdering their children, Agrippa did own a black poodle named Monsieur. Oh, okay. Who may have been a demon in disguise. Who knows? I was like, is this supposed to be a play on, like, Black Philip? Because don't... So looking backward through Goethe's lens, this has covered our view of Agrippa, making him appear as a black magician dealing with the devil, when in truth, this was probably not the case. He was born in Nettesheim, and his family belonged to the middle nobility. In 1509, he visited Johannes Trithemius, and they agreed to work together to revive the reputation of occultism and magic to the status of a divine art. In other words, sanctioned by the church. He earned a reputation as a proto-feminist. Here we go again, another feminist in this collection, for his book on the nobility and preeminence of the female sex, which he wrote for Margaret of Austria in hopes of earning her patronage. He said, since God created woman after man, this means that women were the end or pinnacle of God's creation, the height of God's achievement. Furthermore, Original sin was Adam's fault, and not Eve's. It was to the man that the fruit of the tree had been prohibited, and not to the woman who had not yet been created. God wished her to be free from the beginning, and it was therefore the man who committed the sin in eating, not the woman. The man who brought death, not the woman. And all of us have sinned in Adam, not in Eve, and we are infected with original sin not from our mother, who is a woman, but from our father, a man. The man sinned in all knowledge. The woman fell into error through ignorance and because she was deceived. For she was also the first whom the devil tempted, knowing that she was the most excellent of creatures. See, if someone had slid into my Tinder messages with that as like a line, that would have got someone somewhere. You're going to start getting this all over on the DMs. Yeah, please don't send me biblical hookup lines. It's too late. Agrippa already has slid into Olivia's DMs. The new wave is like, hey, you biblically are the end-all be-all. Like, if that doesn't get you somewhere, like, like even just, like, first base, then something (laughs) is wrong. Yeah, for sure. In London, Pavia and Casal, he studied and lectured on the letters of St. Paul. In Metz, he was a public advocate and defense lawyer. In Freiburg and Lyon, he was a physician and an astrologer. In Antwerp, Margaret of Austria did hire him as an advisor and historian, so that book worked out. He cared for the sick when the plague struck, only to be accused of practicing without a license when the pandemic had passed. It ain't easy being being Cornelius. That blows. He completed his three books of occult philosophy in 1533, just two years before he died. 
He wrote the book while married to his third wife, who betrayed him, actually. His first wife had died on a journey to Geneva, and his second during the Antwerp Plague. Otherwise, we don't know very much about these women. The three books of occult philosophy work their way from our world through the cosmos into the heavens, discussing the nature and power of each realm. Agrippa contends that humans are at work on a mystical upward motion back up from the four elements toward God. The fall of man was the event that separates humans from God. Before this event, we were like God, encompassing within ourselves everything in the universe as a microcosm of God's macrocosm. This blend of elements was infused with God's divine light, ensuring immortality. The fall was the sexual act. Uh oh. Embracing the body through sexual desire and gratification caused, caused humans to fall from the luminous sphere of contemplation because we were busy contemplating penises and vaginas. Yeah, that tends to muddy the waters. Muddied the waters. Sex precipitated physical reproduction as a replacement for man's original project, which was spiritual reproduction or the generation of souls on God's behalf. So God had, like, you know, delegated out to us to make souls. Oh, so at first we were just going to make souls together, and then we were like, nope, we want to make babies. Yeah, we wanted to have that physical sex. Okay, got it. But by reversing this downward trajectory through a spiritual ascent, humans regain their ability to create souls, a project otherwise reserved for God. How about that? How do we do that? It's a kind of self-deification. You got to read the book. Agrippa was a devout Christian who viewed Christianity as the culmination of a philosophical tradition stretching back through the Hermetic texts into antiquity. So we don't want to think about him as a black magician here, even though he is delving into this realm of occult self-deification. I confess that magic teacheth many superfluous things and curious prodigies for ostentation. Leave them as empty things, Yet be not ignorant of their causes, for those things which are for the profit of men, for the turning away of evil events, for the destroying of sorceries, for the curing of diseases, for the exterminating of phantasms, for the preserving of life, honor, or fortune, may be done without offense to God or injury to religion, because they are as profitable, so necessary." And that brings us to our last guy on on the train here, our final figure, and that is Paracelsus. Now, we could do like 15 episodes on Paracelsus. Let's do it right now. Oh, boy. Uh, but uh, I, so maybe kidding. someday. But for our purposes today, I'm just trying to give a thumbnail of German alchemy and, and, and the progression here. So we're just going to dip our toes in Paracelsus. A pit stop. Last in our progression, the Swiss doctor Paracelsus, like Albertus and Trithemius, developed such a strong reputation as not only a man of learning, but a man of secret knowledge, that after his death, writers ascribed their texts to his name as a pseudograph to give their ideas greater credence. This creates the mess that is Paracelsian scholarship. I've never heard this word until until you started using it during the alchemy season. Yeah, it's a big thing in alchemy. All a lot of the alchemists like to attribute their works to other people huh. who were who existed or or maybe who were legendary but you know had developed a reputation. So I guess there's like only so much to go off of, right? Is uh, that why? Well, you don't want to be all alone. So you say, "Oh, Paracelsus wrote this." 
He's famous. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he's got a reputation. And then your your ideas get picked up and carried along. I think alchemists were really interested in other people doing the things they were doing and exploring the things they were exploring to try to find this answer. I see. But it's difficult for us to study Paracelsus because we have to tease out which books were actually his and which were just described to him. Mm-hmm. His association with occultism, for our purposes then, also needs to be carefully ferreted out of his actual writing. He was born in Einsiedeln, Switzerland. Okay. His father was a physician, and Paracelsus followed in his footsteps studying medicine at the University of Ferrara and then wandering through Europe as a military surgeon and itinerant doctor. Our alchemists love to wander. His writing career began in Salzburg in the 1520s and continued until his death in 1541. He wrote on natural philosophy, theology, medicine, and to a lesser extent, things occult. There's been some controversy over Paracelsus's involvement in the occult, with some scholars separating his occult writing off from his medical writing as questionably or falsely attributed to him, but the line of thought in both the medical and occult texts is similar enough to ascribe them to the same author. Paracelsus was primarily a natural philosopher who wrote about medicine, but was secondarily or tertiarily a writer of the realm of the supernatural. Separating the occult from the medical is the product of modern scholars looking back through their lenses rather than accepting the fluid line between the natural and supernatural, the medical and the magical during the Renaissance in Europe. Unlike Agrippa, Paracelsus does not develop his occult views through an analysis of ancient texts, but rather by collecting and applying anecdotes of occult practice to his own experiments and observations. He sought to reform medieval medical practice, but the faculties of universities were not amenable to his theories. And so, he developed a grand occult philosophy, encompassing both normal and paranormal, religion and science, in order to overcome the obstacles to his innovation. Culture first. You got to change the culture before you change the practice. Man is a microcosm or a little world because he is an extract from all the stars and planets of the whole firmament, from the earth and the elements, and so he is their quintessence. As is with many things, so you have to change the culture. Like all things, think. in my opinion, the culture always comes first. I mean, the culture determines the science, what people are open to. So one could even say that science is a culture. Absolutely. Like, you know, it's, it's like a subculture yeah. of knowledge or knowledge seeking. In his analysis of disease, Paracelsus identifies five causes, and among them is ens spiritale, disease caused by spirits. So getting into some of his supernatural theories here, right? These are psychosomatic and have a kind of hex-death quality. Wax figures or strong feelings of animosity precipitate disease in the victim. Malevolent feelings toward others can conjure vengeful spirits who cause physical harm. He went on to devote an entire volume to what he called the invisible diseases. An inadequate or improper faith in God can cause illness and evil feelings that inspire illness. Paracelsus was an early Reformationist, and so he rejected the cult of saints, also pilgrimage and miracle healing, in favor of a system in which faith itself was the mechanism for healing. God's power, pure and simple, without any of these intermediaries, was the curative force. For God, who is in heaven, is in man. Where else can heaven be if not in man? As we need it, it must be within us. Therefore, it knows our prayer even before we have uttered it, for it is closer to our hearts than to our words. 
His Astronomia Magna encompasses all sorts of magical ideas, the transformation of bodies, the magical properties of herbs, the manufacture of magical gems, a point of contact with Albertus, discerning voices at a distance, which connects us back to Trithemius, and interacting with the spirits, not to be confused with the souls of the dead, distinct things in Paracelsus. Objects' hidden correlations are based in their outer appearance. Their resemblances are their correspondences. Personal belief can enhance the power of these images to perform their occult function. This is also sounding a little chaos magic-y. Or at least like Austin Osmond Spare. And that, uh, that's it. That's all I got on Parachelsus. <laughs> really brief Parachelsus there. That's our parade of occultists in and around the German world in the tradition of the legendary Dr. Faustus. Let's compare our guys here. Each was a traveler, each had a separate area of study beyond the occult, and each wrote about the occult in a way, some way, one way or another. It's also kind of interesting that each made apologies or justifications or had apologies made for them after their death regarding their occult activity. Dabbling in the magical properties of stones, angelic communication, or the curing of hexes was not in itself evil. Each argued in his own way that these activities were of God and could belong to righteous ends. They knew the associations their contemporaries made between these activities and the devil, and yet they pursued them and publicized them anyway because they were so convinced that there was nothing wrong spiritually or morally with their actions. That's, that's what I got to say about that. Well, they had an argument, and they defended it. Cool bunch of lads. Yeah, I do like these guys. I really like Magnus quite a bit. I think he might be my favorite of the bunch. Do you guys have a favorite? He's got I mean, the coolest Ma- Magnus name. definitely has the coolest name, yeah, I was about to say. He's definitely... <laughs> I mean, Magnus the only other literally one means I know the great. Like, well, I mean, uh, Magnus Carlsen, famous chess player, also oh. a cool guy, cool name. Also probably one of the greatest chess players of our time. So his name would mean the great Carlsen. Yeah, which sounds like a magician, but the way that that dude works his pawns is magic. (laughs) Quick old chess tidbit for the chess fans out there. (laughs) We probably have some. We're going to take a quick stop in the order of confessors for Eliope444, who calls us absolutely spectacular and an amazing learning tool. Aw. Wow. Well, you know what? Maybe they are the Magnus. Wow. Also, some love to the folks who've been uh, reviewing anonymously. That certainly does uh, make us feel good. We appreciate the stars. Feeding us those stars is never a bad thing. And uh, that's that's it. I think we can... Uh, oh, let me go do the sources, and then we'll go ahead and play this here uh, preview for you, and uh, then we'll, we'll get out of here. So our sources today include Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, Albertus, Magnus, or Magus, question mark, Magic, Natural Philosophy, and Religious Reform in the Late Middle Ages by David J. Collins, the Albertus Magnus Book of Minerals, translated by Dorothy Wyckoff, uh, also, uh, trithemius.com, which is a website, and I will link to that on our resources page. Noel L. Brand's Trithemius and Magical Theology. Uh, also in the, the book, The Occult World, which I recommend to all of you. It's edited by Christopher Partridge, uh, chapters by Florian Ebling, Wooder J. Hanegraaff, and Andrew Weeks. The four of you are involved in a kind of parapsychological experiment to create a sound that will open up your minds to operate on a higher level of consciousness, a next dimension of being. Trust. Trust. I mean, like, I heard, like, it was obviously me, but how does Rob get this audio of me? It's like, I 
I don't know. It was very confusing so and kind of scary. So it was me. It was me and her sitting there, and I watched her do it, and then I played back the audio, and it's her voice, and then there's another voice there making noises, making words, talking. So I've been doing a little bit more research on that conspiracy blog I was telling you about. He's talking about these people that were messing with audio equipment and then weird things started happening to them. I, I can't say for sure what you'll experience through this work or what we might discover together, but whatever happens, the important thing is we must stay with it. Why does the universe keep teasing me? <laughs> you know, just like a different meditation than what I normally have, and... I woke up the next morning and, I, okay, I know it sounds crazy, but I woke up naked outside. Yeah, in the place, I was stuck in a cage and there were rocks falling on me and burying me, but I eventually, I got out. And then I think I was led into the golden place. He's getting to this very, like, sensitive state and I'm trying to protect him a little bit, but then this kid, Dan, just comes in and starts, like, almost messing things up. And I swear to God, if he doesn't back off of me, then I'm going to freak out on him. <laughs> Dan, are you f***ing with me? What? No. Did you leave f***ing rocks at my house? No, I don't even know where you live. You don't know, though. Like, you don't feel it. Like, you have, like, I've talked, and I've talked to myself, and I've talked to other people around me in my house, and, like, this feeling does not go away, no matter how much I find. It's bad. It's a bad idea. It's gonna be bad. Like, like, not just, like, you stub your toe bad, but, like, the world freaking ends bad. I'm not asking you to trust me. Truth be told, you probably shouldn't. I'm asking you to trust yourself, to follow your higher impulses to that other world. You'll find each other there on the other side, and then you'll know that this has all been worthwhile. Rob, what are you calling this thing again? A dark pool? All right, Olivia, bring us on home. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Joining us on Voices today, we had John and Bree. That's John Cook and Bree Litterall doing the roles of Faustus and Mephistopheles, Andrew Mims as Albertus, Brandon Walls as Trithemius, Jacob Wheatley as Corne- Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, and Sean Priest in the role of Paracelsus wrapping us up. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am joined uh, for this episode by uh, Dan, who is the Eye of the Archive. There it is. That is me. There you go. That's Dan Rosendale and Olivia Litterall, our Grandmaster. It's been real. It's been real. Real. Real Real, alchemical. Real fun. Real fun. (laughs) Real occulty. Real alchemically. Yep. (laughs) Next time uh, on A Call Confessions, we continue our season on alchemy with the story of John Dee and the search for the Philosopher's Stone. We catch you next time. We're going to find it. I don't know if he's going to find it, but he's going to look. Find out next time. I said we're going to find it, but yeah, maybe he'll find it. We'll find you next time here on A Call Confessions. Bye.